This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malott. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 1. This season highlights the stories of immigrants and refugees from all around the world, as well as some organizations that work with and for these beautiful people. Today, I am happy to introduce you to my colleague and friend, Karen Bates. She is a veteran ESL teacher with 30 years of experience teaching English to speakers of other languages. She's taught in elementary, middle, high school, as well as university settings. She even taught and lived in several countries throughout the world. I am thankful I got to know Karen during these last three years while teaching at the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado. In today's episode, we have a lively discussion about everything from what marginalized means in the ESL field and how it affects teaching to healing our past trauma and how it could possibly save the world. You will also learn about the highs and lows that come with the profession. Spoiler alert, the highs outweigh the lows. Thank you, Karen, for joining us. I'm so thankful that you're here. It means a lot to me. You're welcome. Um, my first question for you, mm-hmm. and it sounds a little odd because this is not a podcast about superheroes, but I do think <laughs> that a lot of people who work with immigrants and refugees are a little like a superhero. So could you tell me who your favorite superhero is and why? The, there were two that actually popped into my head. Um, the first one, because being a child of the 70s, um, that was Wonder Woman era. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was the first show I really remember with a woman superhero. And, uh, so I think the feminist aspect of it, I guess is what I'm saying, really, really appeals to me now, um, as it did then as well. You probably didn't have the words to explain at the time that it was, I like this strong woman character. It was just empowering Mm -hmm. somebody that you relate to, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but I was going to say my other one that I really like from the Mar because that's DC Universe, and I really am more of a Marvel Universe fan, mm-hmm. <laughs> Marvel Comic mm-hmm. Universe fan. But I, I like Ant Man. I really, oh, really like Ant Man. Just the he's underrated. You know, he's such a um, a loser in so many aspects. I like the humor. I like the ability yes. that he has to become tiny and observe things at this microscopic level or large to observe things, like just getting all the different perspectives and sizes. Great answers. Great answers. So that's a perfect lead in to yeah. how long have you been an ESL sure. teacher? So I was looking back, it will be 30 years ago next mm. month that I started teaching in the People's Republic of China. How did you decide to go to China? I was an English literature major at CSU up in Fort Collins um, from 1986 to 1990. And my Mm -hmm. options were teach, you know, teach in a high school, teach, get my teaching degree for even even, um, uh, elementary education Mm -hmm. to go on that track. Um, I guess go into technical writing. I think technical writing was kind of starting to burgeon a little bit as a possibility. Um, what else? Or go to graduate school mm-hmm. and then teach at the, that, you know, teach at the university level or, or college level. And um, none of those things appeal to me at all. 
so yeah, I was, I was feeling a little bit of pressure and just thought, I don't, I have really no idea what career path I want at all. And then thankfully, um, it was my junior year. I um, took an art history class and I, in that art history class, sat down next to this young woman from Japan and found out that she was an international student and was studying to get her degree. I remember just talking with her every time we had the class. You know, she found out that I was an English major. Actually, she, she asked me then, you know, could I help correct the grammar and read through her papers? Yeah. And she was the one, you know, she was like, well, you can, you can teach English overseas. And I'm like, what? That's a job? She's uh -huh. like, yeah, you can, you can, she says people, English speaking people do it all the time. They come over to Japan and they teach English and they make a lot of money and that's a thing. And I was like, I had, it had, I had never, ever heard of such a career as teaching English as a foreign language or as an additional language to someone. I that's did not fascinating. That, that, that existed until this young woman from Japan let me know. And then I started to get really excited. I actually started to um, take enough credits where I, I'm like, I think I'm like a credit shy of having a minor in Asian studies. <laughs> wow. So I went through and studied um, Vietnam history, uh, Chinese history. I studied Japanese language a little bit at CSU. So I, I delved into that kind of world of East Asian studies mm -hmm. as well at that time. And, and I knew some people who um, I said, well, I think I'm interested in getting my master's degree when I was getting set to graduate, I want to get my master's degree in, um, you know, uh, TESOL teaching English to speakers of other languages. And they said, you know, it, it would really do you a lot of good to go get some experience first mm -hmm. and, and see if it's really something that you're interested in. And then you'll have a foundation of experience on which to build your graduate degree. And these were people who had just finished their master's degree there at Colorado mm -hmm. state in that, in that, field. Mm -hmm. And so I took their advice, applied. I actually wound up on a team of teachers with them in Southeast China from 1990 to 91. And that's, that's the story of how I knew I wanted to become an ESL teacher and how I got there. <laughs> I love so. it. And I especially like how your inspiration came from the most unlikely place. That's a beautiful lesson for a lot of college students right now. A lot of kids, I mean, that's pretty much the main question you ask a college kid, right? Yeah. So what are you going to do oh, yeah. with your degree? And so many of them really don't know. They don't have enough of life experience. Oh, like yeah. you were saying, they didn't know how to put the things they love with the yeah. things of life together and what you're learning. You know, it was really serendipity. I really feel fortunate that, mm -hmm. but I, but I also think it was my openness to someone from another place. Yes, so. I like that word, your openness. That is true. Your mm -hmm. life experiences had proven to you that other cultures are exciting. As an ESL teacher, do you speak other languages? Because a lot of people say, uh, when they find out that you're an ESL teacher, oh, what languages do you speak? Because exactly. you must speak other languages in order to teach English. So can you explain kind of that myth to us? That's a question I get every time as well. You know, you tell people what you do. First of all, you know, usually you have to clarify. I know the term, the terminology for our profession has undergone transformation um, as, you know, through the, through the decades as well. And so 
I sometimes have, you know, in various different ways have to even explain what it is that I do. Mm-hmm. And usually I do say something like I teach, I teach English to at this point, immigrants and refugees or international students. And then mm-hmm. sometimes I will say, you know, ESL, because a lot of people have come to know that profession is that it, then the follow-up question is inevitably, Oh, well, what language do you speak? You know, like, uh, you know, are you, are you teaching in a bilingual program? Are you fluent in Spanish? Are you whatever? And I am not fluent, um, not what I would consider fluent on any framework, but I did start off um, learning French. I changed my mind and wanted to learn Spanish because I knew, even though I liked French quite a bit, I felt, I felt that it was more practical to study Spanish living in, in Colorado because I did grow <laughs> up in Colorado. Um, and so I did most of my formal study of a language in Spanish um, through pretty much all of high school. I mentioned that I studied Japanese for a semester in mm-hmm. university, and then I lived and worked in China. And so I did pick up quite a bit of Chinese when I was living there. And it so happened that my um, first husband was from China and his mm-hmm. parents came to live with us at various points. And so, and they spoke no English. So I was for, you know, forced to use Chinese quite a lot. I'm not wow. fluent in any of those languages, although I can, I can actually understand, I can comprehend quite a bit of Spanish and um, Chinese both and French um, because I did live in France as well for four years. Um, the issue with, do you need to know another language to teach English to other people <laughs> is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the broad answer is no, you do not, not, not technically. Um, what I think, though, is that people who are preparing to do the job that I do, if you haven't tried to learn a foreign language, yes. you yes. really need to. Because in order to have empathy and understanding and comprehension of what it is that your learners are trying to do, I think you have to have been put in their shoes. Exactly. And the only way to do that is if you are put in the position of being the non-dominant language, being embodying the the process that it is to the frustration that it is to try to communicate to someone mm-hmm. in a language that is not your own and mm-hmm. even better i think if a person can have overseas living experience mm-hmm. where they go to live in another country and have to struggle to be understood and struggle to um to speak especially mm-hmm. um i i just don't think a person can be an effective teacher of english to speakers of other languages i have to understand completely how it is, how is it that I can communicate to somebody that speaks no English and how is it that I can make it very obvious and apparent what it is that I'm trying to say and help mm-hmm. string some of those things together. And I actually did learn that when I lived in China, I was just like that, spoke absolutely, I knew how to count in Chinese and I knew how to say, how much is this? Mm-hmm. That was it. Those were, that was what I went to China with. And I remember- wow. The woman who came to give me um, a fresh thermos of, of boiled water and she would come in and kind of sweep and dust a little bit around the room I was living in. I would just be kind of like, you know, hi, hi, you know, waving, mm-hmm. not saying a lot, but she would try to speak to me in Chinese. It freaked me out. You know, I was, I was like, I don't understand what you're trying to say to me, but she was so persistent and patient. And I remember she, she said, Something, I think it was, in my memory, it was something like, which means you're going to teach. And the way that she showed me was like to mimic writing on a chalkboard. 
Wow. And, you know, and then I, I slowly understood she knew I was leaving the room. I was gathering my things. And pretty soon I began to comprehend, oh, the word shanku, that means teach. And I think I maybe asked someone later too, like, what is mm -hmm. this? What is teach in Chinese? You know, I found, I found someone to, to mediate that for me and explain it to me. That's a perfect example of, you know, if you make the context clear enough to people what it is that you're saying, mm -hmm. we're designed. I think there's a part of us that's just designed to, to learn and try to figure out what someone else is saying because so we true. want to communicate. We're motivated to communicate with other people. Yes, we are. We're very social beings, even beings that we don't share languages in common with. It sounds like immersion is what you were uh, learning from and what your students currently learn from. Is that exactly. the best way to say it? Yeah, that's the best way to say it. I don't know if that's the best, necessarily the best way to do it, but it's, it certainly is. It's one it way. It certainly yeah. is the most, probably the most common way that people just get thrown into that situation. It sounds like your experiences have made you a much more empathetic teacher because you know exactly what it's like to walk in your students' shoes. Very much so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Could you uh, do me a favor? You've mentioned mm -hmm. a couple um, acronyms that I think would sure. be good to say what their full meaning is for TESOL, ESL, mm -hmm. and we also refer to a lot of our learners as ELL students. Um, would you mind talking and speaking to that? Yeah, sure. So there are various acronyms that come up. A lot of them, um, the common ground is, of course, the word English. So we have T-E-S-O-L, TESOL, which is teaching English to speakers of other languages. We have ESL, which is English as a second language. Sometimes you'll also see E-A-L, English as an additional languages, additional language, because frankly, a lot of speakers that come in wanting to learn English sometimes already speak two or three or four languages. So English is not their second language. It is an additional language mm -hmm. and it's more appropriate to call it an, Eng uh, an additional language. Um, and ELL is an English language learner. So if people want to yeah. get into teaching English mm -hmm. as a second language, what certificates or degrees do they need to pursue? Sure. I guess it really depends on the end goal. The reason that I knew that I wanted to pursue a graduate degree, which I did, I did receive a degree in curriculum and instruction for teaching English to speakers of other languages in 1995 mm -hmm. from the University of Colorado at Denver. Um, and I knew that if I wanted to teach, for example, international students at the university level or even at the community college level or even overseas, it, it was extremely advantageous and in some cases a requirement to have a master's degree mm -hmm. in that field. Um, but I do know now, like I have a friend, her daughter um, turned 18, uh, lives in France, decided to, as a bilingual speaker, actually French and English. She got a certificate in, in what's called TESOL TEFL teaching English as a second language, teaching English as a foreign language. Mm -hmm. The difference between that is if you're teaching English as a foreign language, it means you're going overseas and you are teaching English to learners in middle school or high school or above, um, just like we would learn Spanish as a foreign language or German as a foreign language or French as a foreign language as a high school student here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that's their foreign language requirement, just like we have maybe a foreign language requirement here. 
So you've mentioned that you have taught overseas, Mm -hmm. you've lived overseas, Mm -hmm. and you have worked here in the United States. Yeah. Could you explain to me um, the different jobs you've had in this career? I taught in China. Uh Um, When I first got back to the United States, I was looking for different jobs to do. I was working in retail right away after I got back to the United States before I decided I was going to apply for graduate school. And I wound up training um, with the Berlitz program for a very, very brief time. I think I learned, I got trained in the Berlitz method and I had a few students, but it was very prescribed and it just wasn't a good fit for me. So I Mm -hmm. did that for a very short time. Um, I went to get my graduate degree and as a part of my practicum, I went into an intensive English program and I was there for six years. I worked in English for academic purposes, training um, foreign students to enter as international students into a a university program. From there, however, I went, I kind of did another career path for a short time as a, as an instructional designer with um, a development company. They were developing online lessons. And um, this was back 20 years ago already. And then I wound up unemployed for a little while, but moved up to Northeastern Colorado. And I wound up getting a job as their, as a school's, um, elementary ESL teacher. I got emergency teacher licensure authorization mm-hmm. and I spent a year as a kindergarten teacher. Wow. And addressing, I think we had between 63 to 70 um, English language learners that were at, on various um, sort of proficiency levels and had mm-hmm. to track them. Some of them were completely mainstreamed into their classroom setting, but I was required um, to check in on them and observe them and create notes and documentation. Mm-hmm. But I, in the same school system, I did, I opened a business to um, work as a paraprofessional for two Chinese girls that had come in and they, they knew I spoke a little bit of Chinese and that I did have my degree, my master's mm-hmm. in teaching English. So they asked me to support those girls in their middle school studies. So I did that for a few months until I moved to Oklahoma for a couple of years. Um, and then I'd worked again in an intensive English program in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I came back to Colorado and I worked for one year in a charter high school mm-hmm. where uh, the population was more marginalized. It was about 90% uh, Latinx. I then went overseas to France for four years. I was not allowed to formally work in France. I did not have a visa to work, mm-hmm. but I did a little bit of um test preparation on the side because the, what we call the test of English for international communication or the TOEIC test mm-hmm. was extremely popular in Europe. And so I coached a few people through their study for that. And then when I came back to the United States, um, after about how many years was I about three years? Oh, I forgot an experience. No, I, I was at a private school, um, a Waldorf school, mm-hmm. and they had international students that had come in mm-hmm. and I tutored them. Um, and then I wound up at Colorado State University again in the, in the intensive English program that my Japanese friend had attended. Came full circle. Wow. Um, in that world of adjuncting, it's very unstable. And when the international student population completely dropped by huge numbers at that university, um, I was laid off. Oh. And it just so happened that on the day that um, you know, a couple days after I found out you're going to be laid off, I had listened to um, 
or watched a video on YouTube. It was uh, Phil Funchel with Samantha B. Mm -hmm. And she happened to feature an episode where she went to visit an English language learning classroom. I was like, I need to, I need to find some refugees. And I knew they were, I knew there were programs in Colorado. I Googled, I happened to reach what was then the, the Greeley Refugee Center mm -hmm. uh, website. And they had a little form to fill out and I filled out that form. And it, and it I, you know, again, this sort of serendipity coincidence, mm -hmm. a teacher had just tendered her resignation with the intent to be moving out of state um, the same week that I wow. said, hey, do you have any openings at your school? At, or do you have, you know, an English language program? Do you have openings? And they did. And I interviewed on um, the, the Greeley Refugee Center combined with an organization called Right to Read. And it is now the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado. And that's where I am now. Yeah. So it is just in your nature to teach. It does not matter <laughs> the yeah. age, level, proficiency, no. type of student. You can't help but teach, it sounds like. It's just, yeah. it flows out of you. This podcast talks mostly about um, working with and for marginalized mm -hmm. uh, groups of people. But have you always done that or have your students not always been marginalized or maybe simply because of the type of work, that's pretty much where it ends up. You end up with the marginalized people. When you are a person of color coming to the United States because of your racial background, you can very easily become a marginalized person, even though maybe in your home country you are not. You know, depending on, on whether it's your social status, your economic status, your gender, your, you know, there are so many ways in which we can look at marginalization based on your sexual preference. So um, true. So, you know, it, and I've seen this also happen actually with even um, a lot of the students that I had taught most recently in recent, you know, past five years, um, students from Saudi Arabia, a lot of men from Saudi Arabia, they get mistaken a lot for Mexicans. Mm. because they have black hair and brown skin. And um, I can't tell you how many students would say that they would, that there was some, there was harassment by white Caucasian people against them or prejudice against them because they were someone who is not Caucasian, not white. Um, and even again, though they come from one of the wealthiest countries in the world and had all of this economic advantage and money to burn, in a lot of cases, not, not mm -hmm. all cases, mm -hmm. um, they found that the color of their skin in the United States marginalized them and their religion. Mm -hmm. Because as Muslims, if they were seen to be praying, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of white American people who are just not cool with Muslims. So true. And people expressing a, a non-dominant, you know, religious preference. And so, so yeah, it was really interesting to talk with some of them about what it was like to become a marginalized person and experience prejudice and discrimination. Those must have been some very interesting conversations, actually. Yeah. I wish I was a fly on the wall because yeah. a lot of people don't hear those stories. That's one of the reasons I want to do this because we think of marginalized and sadly, most of the time we think marginalized people are poor people when that's not always the case. Sadly, the racism, the systemic racism in our country is a huge signifier of marginalization. Um, and because of that judgment on your race, that also makes people think they know what religion you are and yeah. gives them another reason to keep pushing them out to the side, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado, making Northern Colorado a home for all who live here. Whatever circumstances brought you to Northern Colorado, we are so glad you're here now. IRC NOCO is here to help you find your way. We want to be the doorway through which cross-cultural sharing and experiences occur. Whether you are new to this area or you are a part of the receiving community, we want to be your resource for information and services related to moving our community forward together. Through information sharing, dialogue, and events where we can all come together as one, we are investing into our shared prosperity. Empower. Connect. Advocate. Learn more at www.ircnoco.org. What is your favorite level of student that you teach? There really isn't, I really haven't found a favorite. Um, Maybe until recently, I think I really, really appreciate teaching refugees and immigrants so much at the Mm -hmm. center where I am now that I really have to say out of all of those experiences that I've had over these past 30 years, there's, there's beautiful parts about all of them and I enjoy aspects of all of them whether it's teaching very beginners or the most advanced. Um, But I very, very much appreciate teaching refugees and immigrants who are coming into the program I'm teaching in now. They are super motivated learners. Yes. I've never met more motivated, kind, willing people who volunteer in their, in their, very busy, difficult, strenuous lives. Mm -hmm. They take the time out to be in my classroom. And I feel like I want to create an environment of welcome, welcomeness. If you can make that a, here I am an English teacher. Can I make that into a noun? Sure. Why not? Permission granted. A welcoming atmosphere. You know, I want that to be knowing how difficult their lives are in so many ways as refugees having transitioned to the United States, I want that classroom to be an oasis where they can just forget about their problems and do what all human beings love to do, which is to learn. Well, you touched on this just a little bit in what you were saying, Um, but what has been the biggest lesson your students have taught you? Let's just start with the students that you're currently teaching. I know that, that the topic of this podcast is, is looking at marginalized populations. And I have to say one of the things that just smacked me right upside the face, you know, right in the face was probably about, it was two or three weeks into teaching um, with, with then right to read um, in, the, the, in the refugee classroom. I was about three weeks into teaching and there was a form that we had to fill out about their background as learners to get some, some integral data from them, you know, names, addresses, phone numbers. And one of the questions was about education experience. And the whole entire class, the whole entire class reported that they had never gone to school. Mm. They had I bet your heart no just sank. Formal education, exactly. Now, does that mean they were, you know, unintelligent people, not at all. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. you know, they had 
obviously been learning quite a lot as we do. Like I said, people, humans are learners. We desire to learn. Um, but they just had to have no formal education. They had not formally been able to go to school because of circumstances in their country. And I was, I then was just automatically confronted with my own privilege. Yes, yes. Confronted with the fact that people who had had no formal education almost seemed to value it more because they now had this opportunity <laughs> to be yes. learning. And it was so valued in their, in their mindset, in mm -hmm. their value system. The excitement they, they yeah. bring to class, the eagerness yeah. they bring. It's like, even though it's a classroom full of adults, yeah. the, the level of activity and excitedness to be there reminds me of like what American kindergartners are like. They're just so happy yeah. to be in like, school. I get to go to school finally. Yes. You know, it is a little bit of that sense you know not to infantilize or you know what i mean true true um, but 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 that but like you're right that level of understand like understanding that this is a free privilege they had that they could that they had the opportunity like seizing upon the opportunity mm -hmm. with excitement yeah i like how you mentioned you were forced to deal with your privilege yeah that's a really a really intelligent way of putting it has your work as an ESL teacher caused you to become more involved or at least more politically aware about what's happening around our country and the world in regards to immigrants and refugees? Has my work made me more involved and politically aware? You know, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew, like I was saying, I kind of knew way back because the Syrian refugee crisis in you know, 2015, 2016, I of course was aware of that because it was in the news. Prior to that, I had also been aware of um, Afghanistan because I had known um, some people who had, had served and worked in either a military capacity or a paramilitary, you know, as a contractor or whatnot. And I kind of became a little bit fascinated with the country. All of a sudden, I was extremely aware of the Rohingya refugee crisis and people mm -hmm. flooding out of uh, Myanmar and Burma into Bangladesh. That's like a world, that's half a planet away. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that is there. But then you mentioned it's true. Afghanistan has come to us. Yes. Now people living for decades in refugee camps in Kenya have come to us. Yes. And so suddenly it was like those things that were so far away were right there in my classroom. All the different places from around the world that the students come from and trying to get a handle on what was it politically that was going on that created the circumstances that they had to flee. It seems to me that um, the longer that you're working with these people and in this field, everything about it kind of becomes political. It, it just, it, it goes hand in hand and you can't help but your heart is so invested in your students that you want what's best for them. And so yeah. you are seeking out the policies that affect them greater and yeah. wanting to support people who will support those or educate people so they know what to vote for or against yeah. that will harm or help your students, correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, think about it. The backbone, the backbone of the United States as it exists today was built upon slavery and immigrants. Mm -hmm. You know, not to mention, I mean, the, of course, the displacement and destruction of native culture 
Mm-hmm. That's a whole different topic. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, also an important one, a lot, a lot with education and, and dominance that was happening there as well with English language teaching. It, it sent me on this whole journey of trying to understand, you know, because I mean, I want to understand. I learned very early on the best thing you can do as a teacher is understand who your learners are. Like that's yes. just teaching 101. You could not know how to teach a thing, but if you know who it is that you're teaching and why they want to be there, mm-hmm. you've, you've done like a solid 70% of the work that you need to do. So it sounds like your teaching style is not solely the academic part. It also mm-hmm. incorporates a lot of understanding of culture. Yeah understanding of trauma, understanding mm-hmm. of uh, psychological understanding of what people yeah. are having to go through, um, emotions. Um, it's very well-rounded, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah it's, simply, it's just not all about going in and, and teaching someone the grammar. As an ESL teacher, would you mind giving us some advice on how to better interact with and communicate with English language learners? I learned from my own experience as a language learner. Um, I tend to speak very slowly, very clearly, and I do it more consciously. I, you know, I've gone back and like watched videos of myself speaking in this way. And I, I, you know, sometimes think, Oh, I hope they don't think that I'm being condescending, but I know <laughs> when people were trying to speak to me in French and were like, blah, 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 I was mm-hmm. like, Oh my gosh. But the ones who would slow down, and say each word distinctly and put pauses in certain places, man, yes. I could actually understand what they were saying. Yeah, it's and actually it, more respectful. It's more respectful. Exactly. Yes. That was the point I was going to make. It's actually more respectful, I feel, to slow down, uh-huh. give people an opportunity to understand what you're saying, to, to speak over them too quickly mm-hmm. is just kind of not fair. Well, so many people I've noticed not only as a teacher in the classroom, but in regular real world setting is they don't give English language learners enough time Mm -hmm. to think. So they start speaking over them, like you mentioned, or they'll start trying to put words in their mouth. I'm guilty of it myself sometimes. Um, Just give them time. They're, they're translating in their mind. They're trying to find the right word so they don't look or sound stupid and they just need the time, the open space. Yeah. And they'll fill it. But um, we, a lot of times, don't give them just yeah. that simple gift of time. If we could just give that one thing, you know, yeah. that would be the most respectful, kind thing we can do in a moment whenever we completely come in contact with somebody who doesn't speak our language fluently. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I was going to, I was going to yeah, ask go you ahead. before we get yeah, to sure. the closing questions. Okay. Is there anything at all that you would like people to know in general about uh. ESL, ELL Mm -hmm. students, immigrants and refugees, or even TESOL ESL teachers? I want to say that, and this goes back to actually what we were, what we're talking about. I think it's very, very important for people in the general public to know and understand that lack of language does not mean lack of intelligence. Exactly. You said it so perfectly. And, you know, I know I experienced this as a person living in other countries that people mm-hmm. think when you can't speak their language that there's something developmentally disabled about your brain or, you know, that it, or that you're less than. 
because mm -hmm. you have the lack of language, but lack of language does not mean lack of intelligence. And lack of formal education does not mean lack of intelligence because so I have true. extremely intelligent, gifted people yes. who have not formally gone to school, but they have learned and are brilliant, brilliant people. Mm -hmm. About the profession, um, teachers in, in my field, I often heard people <laughs> express that um, English language teaching, because of its history, its politics, its controversy, the nature by which it's, it's existing is kind of called often the sort of the ugly stepchild of the teaching world. Really? And there's, you know, there's a lot of history and politics, like I said, involved in and around English language teaching and how it's been done and what the laws are surrounding it, which is something that everybody going into the field, you must and I don't know that every program does this. I think a lot of programs do for, especially for public school teachers, I believe it's a requirement, but to understand the laws mm. that have, that, that the laws about immigration, the laws about English language teaching, and just to get a really comprehensive knowledge about that, especially if you want mm -hmm. to be a teacher. As a result though, I, I really feel from like observing people and knowing a lot of people in this profession over 30 years, that, that um, teachers of English um, to English language learners are very dedicated, very dedicated, and mm -hmm. also very, very underpaid. That <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not going to leave it at this point. Um, I've tried to leave it. I've tried to leave it two or three times. Mm -hmm. And uh, always. <laughs> it keeps pulling you back, back in. It does. Um, and that's, but you have to, I think, be realize that your reward is not going to be financial, but the rewards are great. You know, the, the rewards are huge. Rewards are bigger than money. Yeah. Money can't buy what you're given no, in totally. relationship in that yeah. smile that you get when you see that they understand something that you yes. have been spending three months trying to explain. Giving the gift of empowerment. Yes. To other humans. Because knowing another language and knowing the language of the uh, well of the country in which you're living brings empowerment. It brings more opportunity. Mm -hmm. it, you know, mm -hmm. it gives so much. And that's why the students are doing what they're doing when they come to yes. the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado. Yes. They, they understand that having some more English means empowerment for mm -hmm. them. Well, let's go to our closing questions. Okay. So your last, your first one <laughs> yes. is, what is your best tip for making the world a better place? Yes. So I follow um, Nicole Aperva. She's known as the holistic psychologist mm -hmm. on social media and, and her website, the holistic psychologist. She does quite a bit around trauma healing. Mm -hmm. And I think that the best thing that humanity could do for themselves at this time is to heal their own internal issues. Do Ooh. yourself work to, to bring That's ourselves good. to a better place. You got to heal all those little ego hurts and wounds inside. So true. It's like we take those yeah. wounds and we project yeah. them onto everybody else. Yes. And it's, it becomes everybody else's problem yes. instead of owning it and taking the time to work on that. That is ooh, so that's think, spot on. You know, that's fantastic. Heal, heal your issues, do your work. That's beautiful advice that we can all take to heart and actually do. Yeah. What 
are you most thankful for? So on a similar, in a similar vein, um, I'm really thankful for the challenges in my life that have taught me how to have inner peace. I've had enough challenges to push back on me that have taught me that, you know, peacefulness is, is being present Mm -hmm. right now. Well, that takes a very mature way of looking at life to be thankful for your challenges. All right. Last and final one. What is your favorite quote? And I know it's hard to commit. I might just say, what's your favorite quote today? Because it might've been different yesterday. (laughs) This is one actually that's been with me since I want to say 1984. So like this is, you know, a long time. There's a film that came out in the 80s. It's a bit of a cult film now called, um, I think it's Buckaroo Banzai Across the Fifth Dimension. And it's a, it's a really old cult film. Anybody that's like a sci-fi geek is going to know exactly and probably know that I've given the title incorrectly. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's Buckaroo Banzai Across the Fifth Dimension. At one point, the main character, Buckaroo Banzai, in that movie says, no matter where you go, there you are. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your heart, your experiences, your knowledge. Today, I have learned so much from you. I continue to learn from you, not only in the classroom, but as a colleague and a friend. I appreciate everything you're doing for your students and for your fellow teachers and for the community at large. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Corey. Obviously, Karen has a huge, tender heart towards the people to whom she's devoted her life. She is constantly wanting to adapt and adjust her lessons to meet the needs of her current students. She stays abreast of ongoing social and political climates in order to stay sensitive to what may be happening in her students' native countries, as well as how the laws of our country affect them. As you just heard, teaching is more than just grammar. It is about embracing and empowering the whole person. When a student feels valued, heard, and respected, the learning flows naturally. Karen actively works at enabling these deeper connections with her students. The word that comes to mind when I think of Karen is the word awareness. Eckhart Tolle, a teacher of awareness, has the most simple yet relevant quote that strikes me as the way Karen lives her life. Awareness is the greatest agent for change. May we all learn to open our eyes to awareness like Karen has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.